continuing this series in the book of Colossians. And as I told you the two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that I felt like it was important for us to look at Christ. I felt like it was important for us to see a vision of Christ during times like we're in today. And so I believe that as we're going to go through this text, this is a section of scripture that, that fell to this Sunday as we have gone through at the beginning of this book. And I believe that it was providentially set for this moment, for this time, for us to, to look at the power of who Christ is and what he has done in our life, the core of what Christianity is. This is what we're going to look at here today. We're going to look further at who Jesus is and what he is powerful to do in our life. And so I just want to thank you for being here and I hope that you've enjoyed your Easter service family packs. It was such a blessing for us to be able to offer that to you and thank you for coming and picking those up. And I pray that your kids enjoy all the candy that we gave them. I know that my kids don't have their Easter service family pack right now. I'm recording this on Saturday. You're watching it on Sunday, tomorrow, and I'm not going to give them the candy until tomorrow. So that maybe at this point, while they're watching me, they're snacking on their Laffy Taffies and their, and their candy right, right now. But I hope your kids enjoy the candy. I hope they enjoyed the Bible lesson that, that Pastor Matt Samahal put in there and the different crafts that we put in there for them to enjoy on Sunday. Just... I just pray that it was a blessing to you. And so I just want to thank you for your continued perseverance during this time. Thank you for your, your continued generosity in giving. You're such a blessing to, to, to me and to our church. We, can't, we could not continue doing what we're doing without your support and what you're, what you're continuing to do in the life of this church. So thank you so much. So we're, we're going to continue on in the book of Colossians. So by way of introduction, before we get into the text in Colossians chapter 1, have you ever looked at someone's life and thought, how do they do that? Have you ever looked at somebody's life, you looked at who they are and what they do and the talent and the skill that they have, and, and you look at them and you think, how do they do that? How is that possible? I thought about, for example, I thought about Tiger Woods. You all know at this point of me being your pastor, you know that I love golf, right? I love golf, I love playing golf, and so I have a, a great appreciation for great golfers. And people will argue who's the greatest, whether it's Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas. But one thing's for sure that when Tiger Woods was just a golfer that I would have been able to see growing up, I could see the highlights of Jack Nicholas, but I was able to see Tiger play in the height of his career. And you would look at his life, and you look at the ability he had on the golf course, and you would think, as somebody who plays golf, you'd think, how does he do that? How is that possible? It doesn't make sense that somebody can win that much. It doesn't make sense that, 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 that he can have that type of skill, that type of ability. And you can take that, that question, you can apply it in many, in many different ways, right? You can apply it to, to, to other athletes, to other sports. You, you apply it to musicians, like the ones that we just heard here this morning on this stage. You just think about music. I think about people that play music. You know, I play drums. But I don't consider that music. That's percussion. That's rhythm. But for somebody who plays piano, plays guitar, I look at that and I think, or any other type of instrument where there's notes being played, and I think, how is that possible? How do they do that? It doesn't make sense. You think of the greatest artists that are out there. It just boggles our mind, right? It's because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem natural. And I think the same thing can be applied to the Christian life. The same question can be applied to our life as Christians. Maybe we ask it like this. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that someone like that 
could change. It doesn't make sense that somebody that was addicted to drugs and addicted to alcohol, their life was going in a completely opposite direction of God. It doesn't make sense that someone like that could change. It doesn't make sense that someone like that who doesn't even believe in God, doesn't believe that God exists, how is it that that person, they don't even believe in God, but they curse God. They're angry towards God. How could it be that that type of person could change? How is it? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Maybe it's like this. It doesn't make sense that you would have peace in the face of that circumstance. When you look at somebody's life and you see what they're going through, but then you look at their life and you see peace. You see a calm. You see a sense of trust of God in the middle of that storm. And we look at it and we think, how is that possible? That they have hope during this time. Or you look at someone's life and you think, how is it that someone like that could achieve success like that? How is it that someone, maybe it's somebody that started at the bottom, they rose to the top and you think, how is it that somebody like that could achieve that type of success in their life? And this is the same type of question we ask of the Christian life. And there are some fundamentals of the Christian life, the essence of what Christianity is, that really just doesn't make sense to our human, uh, to our human understanding. And we ask those type of questions. And as we're going to get into Colossians here, the Apostle Paul is going to begin to discuss the core of what his passion is in ministry. He's going to discuss his heart in ministry and what he desires to do and what he's called to do and what he's called to declare and called to preach. And in the midst of that declaration, we're going to look at three things that I believe make up the core, the essence of what Christianity is all about. What sets us apart? What makes people look in our direction as Christians and say, that doesn't make sense. How can they live like that? How can they change like that? How can they be transformed? How can they have hope? How can they have peace? It doesn't make sense. And so let's look at the text. And we're going to unpack it here this morning. Colossians 1 verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is the mystery? which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So within this declaration of the Apostle Paul, what are the things that make us think, how is this possible? What is the, what's the essence, the core of the Christian life that sets us apart in the midst of a world that seems to be going mad, seems to be in chaos? What is it that he, as he declares his heart as concerning ministry, what stands out? Well, here's the things that I think stand out. Firstly, first point here this morning is that we can rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice in our suffering. Did you, did you catch that in the text there? What the Apostle Paul said? Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Really? How? How can somebody rejoice 
in their sufferings? How can somebody take joy in the sufferings of this life? How can the Apostle Paul say, I take joy in my sufferings? Now, you notice he says, I take joy, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So I want to bring some clarification here. I want to show what type of sufferings he's actually going through. When he says that he rejoices in his sufferings, he specifically says, I am filling up, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So what does Paul mean by that statement? I think by what he means by this statement helps us to understand what he's saying here about his suffering. So he's certainly not saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross lacked anything. When by him saying that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's certainly not saying that the cross and the afflictions of Christ lacked anything. And that by suffering, that Paul's suffering, that he is paying for his own sins. Because that, that, would, that would contradict all of Paul's writings in the New Testament where he declares that salvation is by grace alone, in faith alone, apart from works. Paul never preached a message about the gospel, that it was something that we, had to, that we had to earn by our works, by our sacrifice. It was all through grace and by faith in Christ alone. Here's what he's saying. Here's what it means that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is simply saying that he, along with the other apostles and disciples, were, listen, were receiving the persecution and the affliction that was intended for Jesus. So what's going on here is that Jesus now has been crucified. He was crucified. And now, at this point of Paul's letters, he has been resurrected. And so the, the, those that hated Christ could no longer get a hold of Jesus, right? Because he has ascended at the end of Matthew, at the end of the Gospels, he goes and he ascends to heaven. And the Bible tells us he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the, the, the detractors of Christianity, the enemies of Christianity, they can't get after Jesus, but, but they can get after those who still believe in his name. So this is the picture of what he's saying here, that he is filling up what is lacking. The enemies of Christ lack the ability to get to Jesus because he's not there, but they can attack his followers. Jesus' enemies could no longer inflict pain on Jesus, but they could do it to those who believed in his name. And you know, Jesus spoke to this reality. If you remember back in John 15, listen to what Jesus said. He said this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, right? If we just believed what the world believed, the world would just, we'd be of the world and they would love us. This is what he's saying. But because you are not of the world, meaning that you have not believed in the, in the beliefs of the world system that is separated from Christ. You have not just bought into that belief system, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Paul rejoiced in that persecution and in that affliction and in that suffering. And so this is the sufferings that he is rejoicing in. And it doesn't make any sense that, that he could rejoice in his suffering. And that is, that, that is a core element of Christianity that does not make sense for us in this world. How can we rejoice? And so what sufferings did Paul rejoice in? 
What was the persecutions? He gives us a list in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. Listen to Paul's descriptions of his sufferings. He says this. Far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is all for the name of Christ. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, all for the gospel. Often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's the sufferings that Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for you these sufferings that he went through he did it for the sake of christ and he did it for the sake of the church and he says i rejoice in it how is that possible just like i stand in awe at tiger woods and how he hits that golf ball and how he plays his game i stand in awe it doesn't make sense the same is true for us as believers is that we can rejoice in our sufferings and paul rejoiced in his sufferings and we think how did he rejoice in that you know, I have a hard time having a good attitude when my golf ball doesn't go straight. I have a hard time rejoicing when I suffer like that. I can't imagine. I mean, that list is just overwhelming. Adrift at sea, lost at sea, shipwrecked, naked and cold and exposed, without food, beaten, stoned, stoned, stoned for the gospel. For his belief in Jesus Christ, he was filling up what was lacking in the affliction of Christ. Those that hated Christ and hated the message, they put that affliction on to Jesus' followers. And Paul received that affliction. And I think of the times that I suffer and I compare and I think, how could Paul rejoice in that suffering? How could he do it? Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 7.4. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. Listen to this. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Wow. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. You know what it makes me think? When I think about that, I compare my life to the Apostle Paul. Makes me want to ask a question. What did Paul know that I don't know? Or better stated, what did Paul know that I forget? Because I think we know what Paul knows because we have read what Paul has written. We know the truth of Scripture when it comes to suffering, but I think the reason we don't take joy and we don't see the bigger picture in suffering is because we forget what Paul knows. The reason that Paul can boldly declare that in our, all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. He can have joy in the middle of affliction. is because he knows something. And that truth is pressed on his heart. What does he know? He knows what the Apostle James said. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds. Coronavirus. A tanked economy. How am I going to pay my bills? 
a troubled marriage, kids that, kids that are going astray, kids that are getting into things that I have no control over, cancer diagnosis, various trials. You fill in the blanks. Count it all joy, my brothers. That doesn't make sense. How is that? Count it all joy? When you meet trials of various kinds, here's what Paul knew, and here's what we need to be reminded of. For you know, for you know, do you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? What's happening when we suffer? What do we need to be reminded of when we go through various trials? We need to be reminded that God has not distanced himself from us. We need to be reminded that this testing, when we go through trials and we go through suffering and we go through pain, it is a testing of our faith. Do we really believe in Christ? I said this last week, during times like this, when there's pressure all around us, it really is a, is a moment of separation for those who say that they follow Christ, but it was really only just a casual following versus those who go through pressure and the pressure actually reveals that they have been tried by fire and they come out as pure gold. And their faith is genuine. This is what happens when we suffer. This is what happens when pressure comes. This is why James could say, the Apostle Paul could say, that we count it all joy when we meet various trials of, uh, trials of various kinds. Why? Because we know that the trials are doing something in us. It's producing something in us, the testing of your faith. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith, my brothers and sisters, you listen to me right now in your living room, the testing of your faith right now is producing something in you. The testing of your faith right now is producing something in you. This reality is something that is at the core of our Christian life. This truth that in the middle of suffering, that our suffering is not meaningless, it's not meaningless, meaningless, it has no purpose, it is not true. That is not, that is not a biblical picture that you see in the life of the early church, the life of the apostles. It's not a picture you see throughout the Old Testament. Suffering that God allows in our life is not meaningless. God is working in us through the suffering through the things that we don't want to go through. He's working in us. He's proving our faith. He's testing our faith. He's refining us. He's looking in our heart. He's testing us. You, do you remember Joseph? The story of Joseph real quickly. Joseph in Genesis, sold into slavery. His brothers, his murderous brothers, jealous brothers, they hated him because their father loved Joseph more than, they, than he loved them. They sold him into slavery. He goes, he's in slavery for many years. He, he rises to the top because God's hand is on him. He's faithful, he's diligent, he's a good servant. And he rises to the top. He ends up being second in command over all of Egypt. And Israel is in a famine. The surrounding areas are in a famine. And because of the wisdom that God gives Joseph, Egypt isn't uh, uh, impacted as greatly in the famine. They have a stockpile. So the nations all around have to come to Egypt. For food, And so his brothers come for food. In Genesis 45, you can go and read it later. It says this, that Joseph looks at his lying, murdering brothers, murderous hearts. He looks at those brothers and he says this, don't be mad at yourselves. Don't be mad at yourselves that you sold me into slavery. 
He looks at him and says, you did it. It was you that did it. It was you that caused me to suffer. It was you that caused me to suffer all of these years. You did it. You sold me into slavery. Don't be mad that you did it. But what was the revelation that Joseph said right after? For it was not you who did it, but God. Don't be mad at yourselves that you did it. He acknowledges that they're culpable, but he says there's someone greater at work. This is the picture that we have to have in suffering. That God is at work in the middle of it. It wasn't those brothers that did it. God was over it all. And what did he say was the reason why? Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You meant it for evil to destroy my life, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Our suffering is not meaningless. Our suffering in this life is working in us to produce steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, we can stand as beacons of light, testifying to the power of the gospel. And the world can look at us in the middle of the coronavirus, in the middle of COVID-19, and they can say, how is it that they still meet? How is it that they still have peace and joy and hope for the future? How is it that they are in this trial but they have something that, that, that we lack. How is it that they can feel that they can continue to move forward? It's because of Christ. I don't know if you've heard of a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. You can look her up on the, on the internet. I strongly encourage you to. It's a woman who has suffered greatly in her life. Over 52 years ago, over 52 years ago, she got in an accident at 17 years old. She was an athlete. So she went swimming one day and she dove into a pool and she hit her head and her spinal cord was severed and she became paralyzed from her shoulders down. She has limited arm motion, but from her shoulders down, she can move her arms. She can't get out of her wheelchair. She can't move her hands for 52 years in a wheelchair, over 52 years. It was 52 years last year. In the middle of all that, there's cancer. She had a cancer diagnosis. 52 years, I want you to hear Joni Erickson Tata. Listen to this, three quotes from her. God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. Did you hear that? God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of Jesus than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life and strengthening my character. 52 years in a wheelchair. What a perspective. Listen to this. I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? I rejoice in my sufferings because of what it's done in me. I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. Then she said this. Deep, great trials bring with them deep grace from God. We can take joy in our suffering. Why? Because we know that suffering is not meaningless in our life and that God through the suffering is working in us to produce something that will far outlive the suffering. 
And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the picture of the gospel because Christ is raised. We will be raised. This is the hope of glory that this life is temporary. And this is what we have to get our eyes on. We get so stuck on the here and now. And when our bubble of our life gets turned upside down, we are forced to think broader about our life. We're forced to think deeper about our life. That our life as believers is not about whether we suffer or we don't suffer. Our life as believers is not about whether we suffer and we can pray our way out of it or we can't. Our life as believers is not about the here and now ultimately. It's about eternity. And it's, a, it's about how we respond during these times, if we are in the place where we can testify of the goodness of God. So, so I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what situations you're facing right now. We all have a general one that we're all facing. But specifically, I don't know what you're going through. So what I want to encourage you with is this, is I want to encourage you to have an eternal perspective during this time. This Resurrection Sunday, have an eternal perspective about your sufferings. And remember that God is working in you in the sufferings so that you can testify of his goodness to a world that has no hope. This is the beauty of Christianity, that we can take joy. We can rejoice in our suffering. Listen to the song called New Wine by Hillsong. Listen to these words. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing. But all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. What does that mean? How do you make wine? It's in the crushing of the grapes that wine is made. And if there's anything good going to come out of our lives, the Lord will crush us to work in us, to produce something that points to him instead of us. Lord, whatever it takes, I don't need to understand. I don't need to have all the answers because I know that you are at work in my life. Secondly, as we Go back to the text here. Here's the second thing that we see that is beautiful and glorious about our faith in Christ. Not only can we rejoice in our suffering, but secondly, we are partakers in a glorious transformation. We take joy in suffering because we know that even in the midst of suffering, Christ is working in us to produce steadfastness in us. Increasing our hope and our trust in him. But also the core of the gospel is that we are transformed. Let's look back at the text. Paul says he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him from God to make the word of God fully known. Now listen, he says that there's this mystery, there's been a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So what is this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations before Christ, what was this mystery that was hidden? He tells us what the mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone to present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says that this mystery that he is now able to preach is that Christ comes to live on the inside of you by faith. 
He comes and lives on the inside of you. It's not external religion, because here's the difference. Here's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other world religion is based upon external observance to some code of law. I have to observe and do and obey to be right with God. Christianity is not about external observances of laws and commandments. Christianity is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this new covenant picture, this this inward transformation. We can have an inward transformation. Look at the prophet Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a what? A new heart. And I will put a new spirit where? Within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you and move you. What does it mean to move you? It's this inward motivation. I will move you, motivate you to follow all of my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my God and I will be your, I will be your God and you will be my people. What's the prophet Ezekiel saying? That the new covenant, he was looking ahead to Christ, looking ahead to the new covenant. The old covenant was about the external regulations to restrain the flesh. But the prophet Ezekiel pointed forward to the new covenant where there would be an inward transformation. Prophet Jeremiah said the same thing in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Same picture. To them, God chose to us to reveal this mystery, which is Christ in you. This is new covenant transformation, Christ in us. And this is what makes Christianity so special that it's not about external observance of the law and of keeping of the law that it's going to change us. Because you can work, you can work in the flesh to keep up the law, to not disobey. But if your heart is not changed and your heart is not transformed, you miss the whole point. It's about new covenant transformation. Christ in us. This is the power of the resurrection. Because Christ is raised, we can be raised to newness of life. The glorious mystery of Christ in us, of our transformation, is at the core of who we are as believers. You remember in John chapter 3, Jesus goes and, or I should say it like this, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, goes and finds Jesus at night. Because Nicodemus, a Pharisee, was somebody who believed in observing the law and keeping every letter of the law to perfection for his righteousness. And so he starts seeing and hearing about the miracles of Christ. And he's got he's to go find out who is this Jesus. He seems like he's fulfilling all the prophecies of the Messiah that was to come. And he goes and he finds Jesus and he basically says, How, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, the, a Pharisee, a man that is the epitome of following the law. And says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have an inward transformation. You must have a new heart. And Nicodemus 
says the obvious question. He looks at Jesus and says, how can that be so, teacher? How can I, who who am old, be born again? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, as a way to explain it to Nicodemus, he says, "Look look at the wind. Look at the way it blows. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's coming from. So it is. When you look at the wind, that's what, it's, that's what salvation is like. It is an inward transformation. It is supernatural. It's a supernatural work. It's not a natural work of transformation. It is a supernatural inward work of transformation. And this is the new covenant. Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told a parable. Listen to this. He told a parable to the Pharisees, to those to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What are you trusting in here today? Are you trusting in yourself for righteousness? Are you trusting in Christ for righteousness? Are you trusting in your perfect obedience to the law of God for your righteousness? Are you trusting in the inward transformation of the gospel? This mystery that was hidden for ages and generations but now is revealed to us, his saints. Where are you placing your hope? This is a core of what Christianity is all about. We will either trust in our own abilities and our own righteous deeds for justification before God or we will place our trust in Christ and his righteousness. It's only two options. It's either your own righteousness or it's Christ. And your own righteousness gets you nowhere in right standing before God. It's got to be a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that is accounted on your behalf because of faith. Paul says that it is this mystery that is his message that he has been entrusted with. Look back at the text. He says that this mystery of Christ in you, this inward transformation that that is at the core of what Christianity is, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God so that I can make the word of God fully known. And he said this, Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So this mystery, this core, this beautiful foundation of Christianity of inward transformation of a new heart is what we must preach. We must preach the full counsel of God's word. We want the word of God to be fully known, the new covenant message of hope and transformation and reconciliation and forgiveness of sins, inward transformation. But he says something specifically here. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone. So here's, here's the message. We must warn those who reject Christ and we must teach those who believe. We must warn those who reject Christ and we must teach those who believe. Why? To present everyone mature in Christ. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this warning part of our calling. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. It says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So this is what we're called to do. We're called to implore, to warn. What does it mean to implore? It means to beg someone earnestly or desperately. So here's what I want to do here this morning. I want to beg you this morning. I want to earnestly plead with you. If you are not in relationship with Christ and you have not allowed Christ to come and take up residence 
in your heart through the Holy Spirit, I implore you, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The truth is, is that one day we're all going to die. One day we're going to stand before God. And we will have to give an account for the way in which we lived our life. And there's only one, there's only one answer to the question that we have to answer. And the question is this. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you received him? Have you believed in him? Have you placed your faith in his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection? Have you placed your faith in the work that he did on the cross of absorbing, ab- absorbing the penalty for your sins? Because if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then scripture tells us that you have no hope for eternity. It's only those that have placed their faith in Christ. Scripture promises that we will spend forever in heaven with him. So I beg you, I implore you, during this time, as you're thinking deeply about your life, about the brevity of your life and the reality of life and death, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The hope and the message of the resurrection is that you can be raised and that you can spend eternity in heaven with Christ if you will simply acknowledge Jesus as Savior. If you will repent of your sins and turn from your ways and come to Christ and surrender all that you have, you can be forgiven. We implore you. We beg you earnestly, desperately, turn to Christ. Look at verse 21 of 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That divine mystery that the righteousness of God can come and live on the inside of us. And so that now we're not trying to outwardly try to become righteous. We are inwardly righteous. And out of that inward transformation now our life looks different on the outside. This is a core. This is what we look at and we think this doesn't make sense. How can we rejoice in suffering? How can somebody go from hating God, not loving God, being angry at God... How can they go from that to loving God, serving God, submitting to Christ? How is that possible? It's because of an inward transformation. It's because the Holy Spirit comes and dwells on the inside of their heart by faith. As we transition here to the last thought here, the last part of this message, part of this section, what makes Christianity beautiful and glorious, the third thing that we want to look at here this morning is that we have access to God's divine power. We can rejoice in our suffering. We have an inward transformation, the powerful, glorious inward transformation through faith in Christ. And lastly, we have access to God's divine power. Let's look back at the text as we conclude here. Apostle Paul says this, for this I toil. He says this message, this glorious mystery that I've been called to proclaim, this life of serving the Lord. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Did you catch that? Did you see the contrast there? Paul says, I toil. You know what that means to to toil? It literally means to the point of exhaustion. He says that he toils to the point of exhaustion. And then he says, I strive. He says, for this I toil to the point of exhaustion, he says struggling, which is another word for striving with all of his energy. So he's, he's toiling, he's laboring to the point of exhaustion, and he's striving like an athlete. Picture an athlete 
that is running in a marathon and he's striving, he's stretching to the finish line. Paul says, I toil, I struggle, and I strive, I push. But look at the contrast with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. This labor, this struggling, this striving is done with all of God's energy that powerfully works within him. This is the mystery of the Christian faith. This is the mystery. This is that God is at the center of everything in our Christian walk. It's his power. It's his power. Persevering in suffering. When we take joy in our suffering, how do we persevere in suffering? It's God. It's his strength. It's his power. Being patient in trials. It's his strength. It's his power. It's his energy at work within us. Living in ways that please God. How do we do that? It's his energy that is at work in us. Through the power of the resurrection. Through the power of the spirit on the inside of us. Without the Holy Spirit's power alive in us, we would lack the strength to overcome. Without the power of Christ's spirit on the inside of us, we would lack the power to overcome. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. No longer I, but Christ. This is the paradox of the Christian life. It's not I, but it's Christ. You understand me here this morning? It's not me, but it's Christ. In and of ourselves, we are weak. We don't have enough. In and of ourselves, we don't have enough strength. We don't have enough courage, enough faith, enough ability. It's not Christ. This is the beauty of Christianity. We can rejoice in our sufferings. We are inwardly transformed. And all of it is because of Christ. All of it is because of Christ. Anything good that comes from us, it's because of Christ. You you would be foolish here today to boast in anything. It would be foolish to boast in ourselves. How weak we are. How frail we are. Do you know that about yourself? We're so weak. We're so frail. Without Christ. We have no hope. Without Christ. We are never stronger. Hear me. We are never stronger. Than when we come to understand. How weak we are. We are never stronger than when we come to understand how weak we are. The world wants strength. The world wants power. The world wants control. People fight and jockey for positions of power and control over, over cities, over communities, over nations, over the world. And they fight for power because they think that the stronger they are, the more powerful they are. But that's the paradox of the Christian life. This is the beauty of the resurrection. That in our weakness, we are made strong. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He prayed. He had a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed three times. He said, Lord, take the thorn from me. Take this, take this weakness from me. Take this pain from me. Three times, Second Corinthians 12, I pleaded with the Lord about this. Lord, take it from me. But he said to me, The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let that rest on your heart here today, this Resurrection Sunday. Let it rest on your heart here today, that the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. 
when we're not trusting in ourselves, when we're in the middle of trials and suffering and pain, that inward witness of the Holy Spirit reminds us that we're in a good place because we can't lean on ourselves. We have to lean on Him. We have to trust in Him. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, listen, Paul says, therefore, I will boast. Not only will he rejoice in his sufferings and his weaknesses, but I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We are never stronger than when we come to know how weak we are. People who think they can figure it all out and and get out of the negative circumstances and wiggle their way out and, and, and faith their way out of it, do it on their own, they're actually weak. We are never stronger when we are at the place when we realize that we can't fix it all the time, any of the time. We have to come humbly before the Lord and say, I'm not enough. I don't have the strength during this time to make it. I don't have the strength during this time to persevere. God, I need you. I come before you humbly. And this is what I want us to understand as individuals and as a church. We must see Christ for who he is. That he is our strength. He is our comfort. He is our hope. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships persecutions and calamities we don't get that we don't understand the heart of it I pray that we will understand it content with weakness insults why for when I am weak then I am strong when I am weak then I am strong Our world's trying to figure out how to get out of this mess. Our president and all these leaders, they're trying to figure out how to get out of this mess. There's only one way. There's only one way. It's through Jesus. He's the only hope. They're trying to manipulate and control and move and maneuver and there's political aspirations mixed into all of this mess. And I want to tell you that as a church, it's Christ. It's Christ. Don't get your eyes off of him. Don't place your hope in what the government's going to do to try to fix this. Don't place your hope in your ability to avoid the virus. It's Christ. He's your hope. It's Christ. He's the answer. It's Christ. It has always been Christ and it will always be Christ. Always be Christ. Think of it. The resurrected Christ is living on the inside of us. We have been transformed and born again, and now the power of the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us to be and do everything that God has called us to be and to do. This is the message of the resurrection. We do not serve a dead God who is powerless in our world and in our life, but our God is alive in us. 
He is powerfully at work in and through our lives. And it doesn't make sense, does it? To the natural mind. Joy and suffering. Inward transformation. And his powerful energy and strength at work in our weakness. Doesn't make sense. It's kind of like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the message paraphrase. We're going to end with this. This is what I want us to to think of. This is the message paraphrase. It's kind of like a commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to this. You'll remember, friends, this is Paul speaking. You'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's master stroke, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death, if you want to know the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. (laughs) God's spirit and God's power did it which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. Amen? It's all about Christ. It's his strength. It's his power. So here's what I want us to do today. I want us to end. I want us to end celebrating the power of Christ in us through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So if you're at your home here this morning and you're watching me and you got your supplies from us or you have some other supplies to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, this is what it's about. This is the picture of communion. It's Christ in us. It's his power in us. It's what the work of the cross represents. And so this is what we do here. We remember what he's done. That he provided a way. He provided a way for us in the middle of our sufferings and our trials to look at his suffering and his trials, to place our faith in that so that we can take joy in our trials, so that we can, by faith in what he's done on the cross for us, have an inward transformation and be born again. And that also in the middle of our life that we can be led by his power and his strength in whatever circumstance that that we face. This is what this represents. It represents his work on the cross to heal, to restore, to save. Provides a way for us to spend eternity with him. So wherever you are here today, let's thank God for his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us torn for us, beaten for us. You absorbed the wrath that we deserved. And Lord, we take this moment to say thank you. We take this wafer and we do it in remembrance of you. And Lord, we thank you for your blood, for your death. What this juice represents is your death that you died for us, your blood was spilled for us so that we can be forgiven. And we thank you 
for what you've done, what you've provided. And we take this juice and we do it in remembrance of you here today. We're going to end this Easter resurrection service with a special way, in a special way. We're going to sing a song that many of you have been hearing lately. It's based upon Numbers chapter 6, Aaron's blessing. It's based on this, Numbers 6, verses 22 through 26. Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So we want to end this resurrection service with a blessing over your life. To encourage you, I pray that the blessing travels through the screen here this morning. And it enters your homes and fills your heart with peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon be gracious to you, the Lord turn face toward you and give you peace. Amen.
Children. <laughs> 